Before we start today's episode, I want to share a lovely review of the podcast with you all. This one is titled Love This So Much, and it comes in from Aim Harve 27 via Apple Podcasts. She says, in a sea of different podcasts, I found this one to be such a breath of fresh air, such a beautiful conversation and filled my walk with so much magical inspiration. Thank you so much, Amy, for your lovely review. It truly warms my heart when I read these. Welcome to Witch Talks, a series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, an intuitive tarot reader, astrologer, and eclectic witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. In this episode, I'm chatting with Matt Oren, the multi-award winning author of the international best-selling book, Psychic Witch, a metaphysical guide to meditation, magic, and manifestation. He is a high priest in the sacred fires tradition of witchcraft, which we chatted all about with his boyfriend, Devon, on episode 15 and 16. So if you haven't, go back and listen to those episodes. Matt runs the blog for Puck's Sake on Pathios Pagan, is a content creator for Modern Witch, has a column in both Horns Magazine and Witches and Pagans Magazine, and I'm so looking forward to sharing Matt's work and wisdom with you today. So let's get into it. He is joining us via Zoom all the way from California. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm also very excited to have you on the show. I feel like I've been wanting to get you on since I started this podcast. So it's very, very exciting for me. And uh, I actually said to my husband before coming in, I was like, oh, I've got like um, butterflies in my tummy. I get to speak to Matt Oren. It's very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> this is the first interview I've done in quite a while. I took a hiatus from doing it like halfway through last year, just because A, I got burnt out and B, I had to finish my new manuscript. So yeah. Um, Totally understandable. You were absolutely the first of this year. So, (laughs) well, I pretty much just saw, I was like, oh, he's just released his book. I'm going to just like jump into your Twitter DMs right now and be like, hey, (laughs) want to come on the show? (laughs) So, thank you for agreeing. Now, before we get into our chat today, I wanted to take a squidgery didge at your birth chart. And for a few of my listeners in the US, you know, I do this with some of my guests, not all. It just, I feel like it's just kind of a here and there thing. It makes it a little bit interesting. Uh, but I have had a few questions on what squidgery didge means. And it it's not really a word. It's a, a made up Australian word. <laughs> it sounds very Australian. It's very Australian. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like we often say in Australia, I'll take a squiz, which is I'll take a look. I'll, I'll look oh, at it. Okay. And it's almost a play on that. I'll take a squidgery didge. And I'll tell you what, you say it to any Australian, even if they've never heard the word before, they'll understand what you're meaning. So that's part of the Aussie language, I guess. <laughs> so we're going to have a squidgery didge at your birth chart. Now, when looking at a chart, the first thing I do is see if it's a day chart or if it's a night chart. And you have a night chart, which means you were born during the hours of darkness in your time zone. So oftentimes this might mean you identify more with your moon sign than your sun sign. So for those listening, Matt is a Pisces sun and a Capricorn moon. Now, Pisces sun makes sense for all of the psychic work that you do. And on the surface, I think many people discredit Capricorn placements as being all about career. That's the stereotype. That's not the whole picture. Now, are you familiar with your birth chart, Matt? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So Capricorn, 
for those listening is the image of the mythical sea goat. It kind of looks like a goat mermaid and it shows us that people with these placements are at home in both the practical side of life, but also the mysterious, the deep and the mythical, which is why you have the spiritual psychic side and you're actually able to make something out of it. So does that make sense? I often refer to my moon as my kind of lifeline because if you look at my chart like it's mostly water and fire mostly Pisces and Sagittarius placements um the moon is my only earth placement unless you count like asteroids or like really far out you know planets um and I have no air in my chart um I believe I don't think I do other than maybe like asteroids or something like that um so Pisces and Sag those are both very sensitive signs and very different ways. Um, So the Capricorn moon, like having that earth in my moon kind of keeps me sane. It keeps me kind of protected and like able to like have like an off switch for those emotions if I need to. Um, And not just emotions, but like psychic stuff too. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like a tether for you because I find especially Pisces can be very uh, open with like the the ethereal realms and everything. And then Sagittarius can really be just full of passion and ideas. And they can both almost have the same effect of just yeah, being untethered. And then mm. that Capricorn's like, nope, come back down. We've got to get right. to business and do something, you know, eat food, do what you need to do, get some sleep. Right. <laughs> Actually write a book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. You're able to bring these and put them into something practical and tangible, which is things like your book, for example. Now, having Capricorn as your moon sign means you can often straddle the two worlds of practicality and spirituality quite well. But if you do get unbalanced too much in the practical or work side of life, this can leave people prone to fear or perfectionism or feeling like you're not in control, even when really good at masking that with charm and serenity. So your emotional stability is linked with your feeling of realistic preparedness and making sure your career feels secure, you have an upward pathway, checking things off your to-do list and having a backup plan in place can be really good for you as well. Um, so does that? how does that all sort of feel for you? Oh, totally. Um, you know, it's probably my Capricorn moon that does make me perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Um, I hold myself to really high standards. Um, and that's part of what made my... Uh, tarot and psychic career before I wrote a book like really boom Mm -hmm. um but the problem is is when I would have like personal clients it would take me an hour to like psych myself up to do the reading Mm -hmm. um even though like you know like I knew it would be great afterwards and you know they always loved it but it's just kind of holding myself to like unrealistic standards yes very high standards with anyone with major Capricorn placements that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when I know you were doing the psychic and tarot work before you wrote your book, when mm. did you actually find out that you were psychic? Um, that's a really tough question um, because a lot of it is also looking retrospect at my life and being like, oh, okay. Um, I was always a really sensitive child um, and I had experiences and would say things that would like freak out all the adults around me, uh, particularly because they were, um, super religious, uh, super Christian. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of like, um, either like, oh, Matt has a wild imagination or like, you know, stop that because that's the devil kind of a thing. Um, uh, but, you know, I have memories of, um, like being in bed and at night. 
and then like spirits walking by, you know, like they never said anything to me, but it was almost kind of like they were passing by. Sometimes they'd look at me, sometimes they wouldn't, Um, you know, I would say things that would come true. Um, But I think, you know, um, one of the big beliefs I have, and one of the things I tried to really drive home with my book is I believe everyone is psychic. So I believe everyone's psychic right out the gate. Um, And I think children are more tapped into that than adults. And I think that we sort of get conditioned out of that um, as we kind of um, come more into that that earthy real world um, and kind of leave behind uh, things like the imagination and possibilities and just that sort of open, playful, receptive state, um, which I talk about being so important um, in Psychic Witch. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think a lot of the, I guess, transition away from being so open happens when we go to school and suddenly we've got friends saying, oh, no, 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 we don't think that or we don't believe that or that's not true and don't be weird. And that forces us into this little box that we have to conform with and not to everyone, but for a lot of people, that's where they shut those centers down and and stop listening. Absolutely. So in my book, I talk about how... um, Uh, we see in child development around seven or eight years old. Um, Before that, the child tends to primarily be in an alpha brainwave state, which is the state that we associate with psychic ability and magic and healing and stuff like that. Um, And then once they hit that age, they shift into the beta state, which most people like you and I right now are probably in beta. You know, beta is just kind of normal consciousness thinking and stuff like that. Um, But what's interesting is when you look at like child psychology and sociology, it's exactly at that age that a child begins to understand what is expected of them from adults, from peers, from, uh, you know, so there is that sort of societal pressure coming in and kind of conforming, like you were saying, um, you know, what is real, what's not real. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that about the brainwaves. Do you think if people have children uh, growing up in their household or around them, nieces, nephews, all of that, do you think by allowing them to still be in that imagination space or, for example, if you are a witch and you have a little one in your life and you can be like, oh, no, no, we do believe in that or magic is real, do you think that will help them sort of retain that for a little bit longer? I think so, Um, you know, but I think eventually you can't avoid um, the societal programming, Um, just even going to school and interacting with other children and teachers and stuff of that uh, nature. But I think adults encouraging or just listening to children um, really without like shutting them down or anything of that nature is really, really helpful. Um, A lot of times kids will say freaky things, you know, like kids will see spirits and stuff of that nature. And um, parents will often dismiss it Um, not just in the sense of like, you know, oh, that's not real, but maybe they do believe it's real and they're trying to like calm the child down. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily beneficial. Um, I think a a better uh, tactic would be sort of like, this is how we protect ourselves so that like anything doesn't bother us, you know, in case it's real, in case it's not real, whatever, like, you know, this is just a basic form of protection or shielding. Yeah, definitely. I surprised myself, actually. I have two little ones and my eldest, she turns five tomorrow. So that's very exciting. She's another Pisces. Uh, But she, when she was four, so in the last year, there was one point where she called me into her bedroom at night and she said, mom, 
why is that boy looking at me? And I went straight knowing me. I was like, oh, all right, right, we're accepting, we're open of this. But I also have mediumship abilities. So I was like, I'm not picking up anything. So there's a part of my rational brain going, maybe there's nothing. I don't want to, you know, you don't want to push anything that's not there and pretend it's real, but it, it was that balance. And she kept saying he was in the vent, like the, the air conditioning vent in the roof. And so I, I didn't discount it. I was like, I'm, I believe you. I believe mm-hmm. everything that you see. Mummy can't see him, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Right. But we can just say, you know, can you leave me alone? I don't like you staring at me. And that boy staring at her was there for about a week and then he went. But she was never scared or anything. That was the big question. Are you scared about it? But I struggled myself to not be like, there's nothing there. <laughs> Right. And I'm like, I'm me. <laughs> so it's well, tough. And so um, I have my own beliefs about that sort of thing. Um, so in my book, I talk about the three soul model, you know, this idea that we have three souls. Mm. Um, and that ties into my beliefs of like, oh, well, how can reincarnation be true as well as ancestral work? Um, because it's different parts of ourselves. Um, and most mediumship, um, specifically, as it's been passed on from uh, spiritualism, because that's essentially where most of our mediumship skills originated from. Um, I believe that it's tapping into the higher self mm-hmm. of the individual. Um, and they use identifiers to kind of be like, oh, this is who I am, you know? So like if, um, you know, your aunt Peggy was not a very nice person and you're bringing them forward and they're like, oh, you know, Aunt Peggy is just full of love and light. You'd be like, who is that? You know, so they use identifiers. So you you understand that it is them. Um, but I think when it comes to something like hauntings or residuals, um, I, I think that's another aspect of the soul. Um, and that's usually the aspect that does move on to reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, so. so So I think that's why like sometimes like, you know, like you can be like a fantastic medium um, and not sense something like a spirit that a child may be sensing just because our natural when we do mediumship, you know, we're 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 going upwards and we're reaching for, you know, those messages of empowerment and stuff. So it's kind of sort of like um, just where you're kind of directing your. psychic ability not to be like that's exactly what you were doing but like when I hear that that's how it makes sense to me that your child may possibly be seeing something but you may not be picking it up yeah like a different aspect and I thought potentially it could even be uh maybe not a human spirit which possible as well personally I haven't had a lot of uh experience with things that are not human spirits so potentially she has that gift and I don't. So I kind of left it in that realm in my head, but that makes a lot of sense. And my, my own mentor, when I was learning psychic and medium abilities, he is a spiritualist as well. So he Hmm. he's a medium in a spiritualist church. So I get a lot of that influence myself. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, and that tends to be the most popular forms of mediumship, Um, you know, and there's a lot of like raising your energy and like, you know, um, uh, working with light and, and love and that sort of an energy, which is going to direct you to the higher self aspects, mm-hmm. um, which is where we get those empowering, loving, um, closure type messages, you know, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to like a ghost or um, an ancestor, which is a different part of the soul as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I loved that 
that that you got into your book with the three souls and there's a few more of that we're going to get into but just to start off with with your book psychic witch and I do want to talk about your new book as well but we'll get to that also um you've written it like it's laid out in a series of developmental exercises for the reader to try I've read it and I recommend it all the time because you do a truly excellent job that it's a wonderful book um but what made you decide to present it in the way that you did with a series of exercises like that so, you know, it's funny because if you go to uh, Amazon, at least Amazon US, I don't know if it carries over, like the top review, like the top voted one is a criticism of like, oh, it's all exercises, you know, and, and no like um, discussion of it, which I feel like I did do a lot of discussion as well. There is discussion as well. Like you'd have paragraphs explaining what all of the things mean before right. going to the exercises. But, but it definitely is exercise driven and focused. Um, and part of that was honestly, because that's the book I always wanted. Um, you know, I've read tons of books throughout my life, like trying to develop psychic ability and strengthen it. Um, and a lot of them left me very frustrated, um, because they were very, um, like there, there were usually not a ton of exercises. And when there were, they were usually a little bit vague, you know, and it was kind of like opening your intuition or like, you know, just kind of like really broad, um, uh, exercises. So, um, through my life, I've, uh, gone and sought out different psychics, um, and witches, and they tend to intersect both be witches and psychics to train under and study. And so like, you know, I, developed all those skills plus the skills that like I kind of picked up organically. Um, and I wanted to present that to people um, to help them realize that they can do this too. You know, that there are specific methods that if you do them, uh, you will have results. Um, because I do think that we need more psychic people. Um, we need more magical people as well. Um, I feel like um, a lot of the problems in the world has to deal with a disconnect from our spiritual nature. Um, and I think things like psychic ability or even um, like psychic ability helps you uh, realize that there's something beyond the physical, right? And then with magic, we can change ourselves, we can change our lives and then hopefully change the world. Um, so I wanted to kind of break down those those gatekeepings, because even like really talented psychics and mediums, they'll often refer to what they have as a gift. And to me, that is gatekeeping that, you know, to this idea that only certain people are born with it, um, I feel is not a good thing to be telling people, you know, I do think some people are naturally more, um, oriented to be uh, a little bit more naturally strong at it, just like some people are naturally more athletic or naturally more artistic or naturally gravitate to music easier. Um, but I think it's just like all those other things. It's something that every single person can do if they put the work into it. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Everyone is psychic. Everyone has access to this. And wherever you focus your attention, that's where the energy will flow and that's where you'll flourish. But if you're not paying attention, you're not going to develop it. Right. Yeah. Now with the book, one thing I desperately wanted to ask you after I read it, especially after the very first exercise um, and the way it was worded, I think it sort of prompted in my head. I was like, Ooh, how would this exercise be done if you had something like ADHD or even some forms of anxiety where you can have, you know, 
um, impulsive thoughts and things like that that pop in. Do you have any advice for people who are neurodivergent that might be doing some of these exercises and might have some trouble? So you're talking about the countdown, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, So for those who aren't familiar, the whole exercise is learning to focus your attention, um, which is like a primary thing for the work in the book. Um, So I have people count from 100 to zero three times without interruption. Um, And that is a big thing. And I should have clarified it a little bit more. Um, You don't have to do it exactly like that. Um, Later in the book, I talk about meditation as um, I use a weird metaphor of like working out in a gym, like lifting weights, you know, um, you work up to things. Um, So, you know, my advice would be start with a low number, um, like 10, 10 to one, three times. Once you have that down, you know, as those muscles are strengthening, um, move up to 20, you know, 50, et cetera. Um, But when it comes to specific things like ADHD or um, attention um, uh, difficulties, um, because you don't necessarily have to have ADHD to have attention difficulties. Um, This is a question that I get a lot, and it's actually a main focus um, in the next book. So I worked with a lot of people with um, ADHD as well as people with aphantasia, which is the inability to see images on command. I have um, that as well. <laughs> yeah, to experiment and figure out how, how do we develop this? How do we approach this from a different angle? Um, because uh, it, I didn't intend to, and I didn't feel like I did at the time, but um, a lot of people felt like the book was very visualization heavy. And I think part of that problem is I wasn't clear about the word visualization um, because in the book, I have an emphasis on developing all the clairs, right? So like clair audience, clair tangency, stuff of that nature. So when I say visualize, it doesn't always mean, you know, see the image, but like, you know, what would that feel like? What would that sound like? Anything that evokes those senses is going to assist you um, in it. Um, but I do have specific practices that I um, have developed in the next book. Um, I had people with these conditions uh, work with it. And I had um, sensitivity readers too, since I, I don't have these things and I don't want to, you know, accidentally say something that I didn't intend to be uh, you know, offensive and have it come across offensive. Um, one of the things that I do know about ADHD from talking to the people that have it is I had this big misconception that ADHD is a lack of focus. And the feedback that I got is it's not necessarily a lack of focus. It's a deregulation of focus. An inability to regulate where you're focusing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and so, that kind of fit a puzzle piece for me because people that I've mentored and that like have been students of mine that do have ADHD, like I tend to find that they're extra psychic or they're extra magical, like once they get over certain hurdles, you Mm -hmm. know, but it's, it's the whole thing of like getting over those hurdles. Um, And, and a lot of that also has to deal with excitement of being in the present moment to do the thing, you know, um, because that's when your mind and your attention begins to, to wander um, according 
to the people that that I talked to um, for this because it was something that I really wanted to solve um, because it was a huge feedback that I got with the book was ADHD and aphantasia. Yeah. Um, with aphantasia, definitely just engaging other senses as much as possible. Um, I also have uh, various tips to help strengthen visualization. Um, so I share a story in the new book, uh, my friend Liz, my friend Liz is extremely psychic, like extremely psychic. Um, but she has aphantasia and we were, um, in the woods once, and we were going to a campfire. We were walking through the woods to get to a ritual bonfire to meet up with other people. And as we were walking, we both stopped and we looked to the side because there was a spirit there. And I said, do you see that? And she says, yes. And so I tuned in to see what it was, see what it wanted, you know, um, and it was just kind of scoping us out, making sure we weren't like messing with its territory or whatever, you know, so we just told it, you know, we're just passing by, we're good, you know, we mean no harm and we moved on. And then when we got to the, the campfire, we were talking about it and she described it in perfect like detail imagery, exactly as I had. But the thing is, is she didn't actually see it in her mind's eye. Um, she is more, um, and I touch on this barely in Psychic Witch. Um, what I believe is going on with her is she receives things through the noirs instead of the clairs. Um, and that's a term uh, that uh, the brilliant Evo Dominguez Jr. coined. So Claire is French for clear, noir is dark. Mm. So um, these are things. So if you think of um, perception as being um, like a movie theater um, projector, right? Where it's the different frames of the image that are going by so that it creates an image. Um, in between are those little blank pieces. And we're constantly, there's constantly this blank going on in our mind of things that we're receiving. And that's the noir. That's the sort of, it doesn't process through the conscious mind. It kind of bypasses that in the subconscious mind. So a lot of things that engage the uh, idiomotor effect. So things like a pendulum or uh, spirit boards or uh, automatic writing where you don't know what's going to come out until it comes out. You know, you're still receiving that through your psychic senses. It's just not being consciously processed. Um, and one of the things that... Um, I learned from mediumship and I've, I found that this is helpful for people with aphantasia is to start speaking. So start describing whatever is coming to you. Cause a lot of times as you speak, it starts to form uh, the image um, and a good psychic um, equivalent of that um, or not even psychic, but like psychological would be to take something that you aren't receiving psychically try to conjure that in your mind and start describing it. So like, you know, um, if I say hold an image of a dog in your mind and you can't see the dog, just start describing a dog um, while you're trying to do it. And it'll slowly kind of start to form. Um, because what I found with my research with aphantasia too, is that aphantasia isn't the inability to see images. It's the difficulty to see it on command. And a lot of researchers, uh, discovered that because they found that their, um, their subjects in tests still dream. They still have imagery in their dreams, which shows that the mind does, it has the capability of forming images. It's just more difficult to do that on command. Um, 
But like with everything, whether it's aphantasia or ADHD, um, you know, we all have uh, our strengths and our weaknesses and anything that is more difficult is going to take a lot more work. Um, and there's no easy way there's no easy way to like bypass it. Um, you know, there's things that I have to work extra hard at that's easier for other people. Um, it's just, you know, figuring out what your strengths, what your weaknesses are, and then trying to figure out how you can um, approach it from your strengths when you're engaging it, but then try to develop the things that you're uh, a little bit uh, struggling with. I love everything that you just said. I, so I don't have diagnosed ADHD, but I'm actually seeking an adult diagnosis at the moment because I'm pretty sure I do. And I think self-diagnosis has a, plays a part as well. Um, so a lot of the struggles that people go through, obviously I feel the same in those sorts of things. And I remember when I read that first exercise, I was like, I know I'm psychic and I can't do this. And it was yeah. like a, oh, I'll just keep reading. And then the other ones were fine. So I kind of just mm. like pushed on. Um, but with the aphantasia and I teach a course in psychic divination myself and the way I describe it, which now that you've mentioned this noir aspect is like amazing. I wish I knew that before, but I usually describe it like if I'm reading a book right out loud or even just in front of me inside my head, I can visualize what's happening, even though my eyes aren't closed. Right. So I'm not really seeing it in my mind's eye because I'm seeing the book in front of me. But I still know when they say there's a house on a hill and it's surrounded by green grass and there's a purple sky. I know what that looks like. And that's how images and visualizations come through to me, even though I can't physically see it in my mind's eye. It looks black, right, with my eyes shut. But I still know what it looks like. It's very hard to describe. But talking about that noir, and if correct me if I'm wrong, I'm imagining it's almost like the flick of these um, images that go when you have them really fast together, you see a clear image, but in between the images, there's black and our mind fills in the blank. Is that what you're meaning with the noir? Yes. Um, And uh, you also touched on something that I found. Um, A lot of people have a misconception with clairvoyance or like holding images in your mind's eye. Um, This idea of closing your eyes and seeing something perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually you can get to that, but that is really, really hard. And um, the example I use, and I think I use it in the book too, um, Psychic Witch, is literally reading a novel and seeing it. And it's usually kind of up here-ish. Like, it's not like right in front of you. It's just kind of like up here. Like that is your screen of your mind. And that process is exactly what visualization Mm -hmm. feels like. So it's about like, once you figure that out, it's about strengthening that and like trying to get that to be clearer and clearer and clearer. Um, Just just like anything, um, like I said, it's like a muscle. You've got to work it out and strengthen it. And then it, it becomes easier and easier as you keep working on it. I agree. And I loved what you said as well about just start talking. I found that when I was developing my mediumship, I I would write it down, write down what I was uh, getting. And I'd be like, I don't have anything. But then I would just put my pen to the paper and then suddenly I'd get all this information. It's almost like that trust, that leap that you have to take helps it to come through. And it's similar with tarot. If you don't know what the card says, just start describing what you see on the card and then it will flow and it will come out. So I love that. I love that tip. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think it's kind of like, um, I I don't know how exactly, like, I feel like on the tip of my tongue, there's a metaphor to explain it, but it's almost sort of like sometimes, um, 
wherever, whatever you're getting the information from, whether it's the subconscious or it's something beyond that, um, I think sometimes it also is waiting to make sure that you have it. So speaking it or writing it or something like that is almost sort of a, a confirmation of like, okay, I got this piece and then more comes, comes forward. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, um, I'm not sure if that's how it is for you, but for me, that's my experience. It feels like, like once I start talking about it, it starts flowing, like more and more information comes. It's just waiting for me to like, to start uh, with that. Um, When I was developing mediumship, um, uh, one of the people that I trained with a lot was my friend, Danielle Dion, who wrote a book, Magical Mediumship. She's one of the most mind-blowing mediums I ever met. And I always had this thing of like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, And uh, she literally was the one who um, was like, okay, well, like, I know that you're naturally like clear tangent. Like I can feel like feel energies um, in my hands and stuff like that. So she had me hold on to something without telling me what it was. And she was like, just start talking. And so I just started talking and it was like, bam, everything started coming through. And then I started kind of seeing them in my mental, uh, my, my mind's eye, my witch eye, whatever, whatever paradigm you're approaching it from. But definitely that aspect of sort of just like um, letting yourself go. And that's, that's a big part of why I try to drive home this idea of like, permission. And I, one of the first exercises is role-playing is because a lot of times we get in our own way. And a lot of times we feel like I'm not getting anything. And then we stop ourselves mm-hmm. because we're like, Oh, I'm not getting anything. And, and doubt a, a lot is of such it, a big block as well. As soon as you start to doubt yourself, it's like a oh, field that goes up. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when I was uh, training with Lori Cabot, one of the things she would have us do is, uh, when you're sitting with someone and you're um, cause the, the exercise she has us do is um, we have to come in with a form filled out with uh, someone's medical diagnosis that we know it has to be diagnosed by a doctor. So it's, we know that they have it, you know, and it's not just like, I think I have, um, and we have to describe them just based on their name um, and their location. Uh, we have to describe what they physically look like, what they're like as a person, and then what's medically wrong with them. And one of the rules that she really drove home was you are not allowed to say no. When the other person is giving you the information, you can say yes, yes, you cannot say no, because that no will shut you down. That, that doubt that you're talking about, um, you know, as soon as that um, as Devin says, he's, he's very big on this term, the itty bitty shitty committee that lives in your head, you know, that's, that, that fills you with doubt and tries to get in the way. Um, it's all about bypassing that. And that's why I feel role-playing as a, a psychic development exercise is so powerful because you're giving your permission, you're giving yourself permission to be wrong and to just play. You know, it, it's a lot of times when we approach these things, uh, from a beginning and we, we're taking it too serious and we're taking it to, um, we have certain expectations of it. We get in our own way and we don't just allow ourselves to flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love that about not saying no. I use, I do a little like psychic development game with my daughter. And so uh-huh. what we'll do is I'll say, you know, I'm thinking of a color and she goes, uh-huh. all right. And I said, now I'm, I'm going to tell you to close your eyes. You can see a staircase. And she's like, yep, I see it. I'm like, all right, go up the staircase. There's a door. What color is the door? And she'll say, you know, white. 
I said, okay, open the door, right? If it's not the color that I'm thinking of, continue on. She goes through and I said, now there's a box on the floor. Open the box, what's inside? And she'll say, it's a plant. I go, well, what color are the leaves? And she'll say, red. And I go, well, that's the color I was thinking of. But if it wasn't, I would almost like continue the, the visualization. Well, now we take that out and there's something underneath it. What is it? So right. not, not giving that no. So it's almost like she can keep receiving. I she, love that. Yes, so much fun. It's, it's a really fun one. Then we swap and we play the other way as well. And uh, we try it holding hands and it's usually better. So it's, it's really good. <laughs> and I really like that because you're not necessarily telling her where the answer is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she doesn't get it right away. Keep, keep moving, you know, yeah. keep access. I love that. That's yeah. great. It's really fun. It's a fun exercise. I'm actually going to take my, uh, I have a Patreon live uh, that I do with some of my Patreon supporters once a month. And mm-hmm. I'm going to take them through that with each other okay. on the live and see how we all do. Cause I think it's just, it's fun and fun. You're right. You, you mentioned that in the book as well. You've got to keep that role and element of fun in what you're doing. Yeah. It's quite high energy as well. Now in chapter six of psychic witch, you speak on the three souls of the witch and you were mentioning before um, we sort of referred to, to that earlier. Now, can you tell me more about where that concept originated from? So that comes from a lot of places. So what's really interesting is this idea of a singular soul is actually very new. Even early Christianity had the idea of three parts of a soul. Um, They referred to it as a corpus anima and spiritus of a person, um, which is uh, body, spirit, and soul. you know, it's not always a division of three throughout different cultures, but that tends to be the primary um, number and division, even though little aspects have changed. Um, Like the Egyptians had nine. Um, I think that's the consensus is nine aspects of the soul. Um, The three souls, um, it's it's almost universal if you start digging. Um, A book I highly recommend if you want to learn about like different parallels um, is Christopher Penzak's uh, The Three Rays of Witchcraft. He goes into like all the parallels. Um, But the the biggest way that it entered into witchcraft is from Victor Anderson and the fairy tradition, F-E-R-I, which influenced... um, well, fairy, but then also like uh, non-fairy. So like Starhawk was a student of Victor Anderson. So in reclaiming, she has the three souls. Um, Orion Foxwood um, was uh, friends with the Andersons. And so um, in his very seership, he has the three souls. Um, so it's just kind of worked its way into witchcraft traditions. Um, it, But it's not, to my understanding, it's not something that's in... Um, Uh, what we refer to as British traditional witchcraft. So like Alexandrian or Gardinarian, um, they may have a concept like that, but I have not come across it and I haven't heard of it. Um, But if you look at like uh, other pagan cultures, like I know Christopher lists out like a Celtic um, equivalent, a Norse equivalent, you know, there's, there's just all these equivalents. And it also, it helps us to recognize that, um, every part of ourselves is divine by referring to it as a soul. So, you know, um, the easiest division is to use the sort of like new age metaphysical uh, mind, body, spirit. Um, But when you think of those things as spirit as being the holy thing, and then there's your mind and then your body, um, there tends to be in spirituality, the sort of like 
um, disregard of the body or the physical or even sometimes the mind. And all three of those are divine aspects that need to be honored, that have their gifts, that have their challenges, um, uh, that essentially lead you to being fully um, self-actualized and self um I use the word sovereign a lot. So like sovereign, like, you know, like owning your body and your mind and your spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, it's, it's interesting because also um, there's a clear parallel between this concept and uh, Freudian Jungian uh, division. Um, so while it's not the same thing, there are correspondences between ego, super ego and id. Um, it would relate more to the physical, like primal in- instinct. Ego is like your sense of self. It's your mind. It's, you know, it's what can say I am Matt Oren, you know, um, and you are not, um, and our tastes and our, uh, dislikes. And then, um, the super ego is something beyond us. It's something, um, it's a personality that, um, is connected more to like the subconscious or the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that even them like exploring just like the human mind from a different angle came up with a three-part kind of parallel. Yeah, it's also giving, I mean, you you mentioned Christianity and how it, it was part of that, but it also reminds me even of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those right. three. And the way it's taught is the Son, Jesus, was in a bodily form. The father is more like the mind. We hear him in our thoughts. Uh, He speaks to us. And then the Holy Spirit was almost, uh, you wouldn't really hear it speak. It would just move through the places, right? That was Mm -hmm. how it is in the Bible and how it's taught in church. I too was also brought up very religious household. So got those ties in there. Uh, So that's that's very interesting. It also reminds me as well of there are some concepts in in more new age um, ideas of the, there's the, us here and now, then there's our higher self. And then mm-hmm. there's also the oversoul. Have you heard of that before? Yeah. The, um, the oversoul, I would tie into the higher self mm-hmm. though. Um, if, if we're going, if um, what I'm familiar with is the theosophical term of the oversoul, which is most likely where new age got it from. Most likely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's because um, the higher self has a, understanding of what things really are. Um, and the higher self is part of something greater, uh, the oversoul, right? Um, which is part of a monad, um, is the term theosophy uses. Um, so this also goes into my whole thing. You know, I believe we're all one on the most fundamental level. Um, as we zoom out into the macrocosm, things kind of unify. As we come down, things um, separate, you know, which is um, you know, in alchemy and on the image of Baphomet, there's solva and coagula, which is dissolve and, you know, bring together. Um, so like, that's even my view of divinity. You know, I do believe that like divinity is singular and then it breaks down. And I believe human consciousness is like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the example that I give is, you know, that um, all, all of us like that have a body, um, are composed of tons of organisms, even when it goes down to like the single cell organisms. So if I were to go down and like talk to a cell in my body and be like, you and Matt Oren are the same, or you and this other cell are the same, 
you know, if it had an individual consciousness, it might be like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm obviously very different from this other cell. But we know on a larger scale, it composes something that I refer to as Matt Oren. Um, so, you know, my ego, my, my personality, my middle self may say that you and I are different people. But if you were to ask our higher self, it may give a totally different answer. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I keep thinking as well, even just with, with physics, if we look at a table, it's hard, it's solid, but the closer you go, it's actually not. Right. <laughs> it is not solid. And solid doesn't really exist because it's all made up of these tiny little things that, you know, are all tiny and separate. So I love, I love that visualization. That is a, a great way to, to look at it. And I also have that view of the further out that we get, the more we are one. It's, it's that almost hermetic philosophy that, that I right. describe to as well. I love that. All is mind. Yes, exactly. And all our thoughts in the mind. Mm-hmm. I interrupt your listening pleasure to ask you if you're enjoying this podcast. I ask because this series is a labor of love. And if you like what you're hearing, consider signing up as a Patreon supporter to see its continued success. Not only will you receive exclusive access to my private Facebook group, but also monthly live readings and moon ritual worksheets. Head over to patreon.com forward slash suburban witchery to sign up now. And now back to the show. Now, I truly also loved your notion of the three cauldrons that you talked about. For me, it seems almost a witch-centered version of something like the chakra system. Did you come up with this yourself? Is this similar to the three souls where it's found in lots of other traditions? Can you tell me more about it? So the the three cauldrons in the way that I present it comes from um, an Irish bardic poem called The Cauldron of Posey. And The Cauldron of Posey describes the three cauldrons And it says that these cauldrons are the source of all inspiration and poetry. Um, And what's interesting about that is um, poetry in in like Irish bardic and as well as lore is often conflated with magic. Like magic and poetry are kind of hard to separate. Like they're kind of the same thing. Um, And it's probably coming from that bardic tradition, you know. Um, of like magical like rhymers mm. um, is that where the word bard comes from like if you're watching the witcher and there's a bard and they sing a song in a tavern that sort of a thing yeah yeah like like exactly um a, they were like storyteller singers poets um but but it's based in a spiritual tradition so the three cauldrons were adopted by many druid um sex and uh, traditions and then that made its way in naturally into witchcraft because witchcraft has um, a lot of um, Celtic revival sort of roots um, and draws a lot of inspiration from um, a lot of Celtic paganism and druidry and things of that nature. Um, what's interesting though, is that after I wrote the book, like I had no idea this, um, I found out that the almost exact concept is in Taoism, um, for anyone who does like Tai Chi or Qigong, um, it's often referred to as the three jewels. And those three jewels are often referred to as two cauldrons and a furnace. Um, and there's a lot of parallels. It's not exactly the same, but there's enough parallels, um, for me to believe that, you know, because I, I do believe that like humans tap into the same thing, you know, the cultural Universal expressions truth. may be different, but yes, that there is an underlying truth, um, because these things are real. They're not just, you know, made up, um, you know, the cultural lens may be different, but everyone's kind of exploring and discovering and working with very similar things. 
Yeah, I love that. So um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the three cauldrons represent, what each one is? Yeah. So, um, you know, you made the comparison to, I think, I think you did, or it was the chakra system, the Mm -hmm. chakra system. Um, and that it, yes and no. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, I don't personally work with the chakra system, which I think surprises a lot of people. Um, uh, because like, that's just such a fundamental in psychic development. Um, but it doesn't necessarily fit into my paradigm Mm -hmm. though. You could squeeze it in because I have the seven energetic bodies of the aura and that can correlate to chakras if you work with the chakra system. Um, but essentially they are focal points for accessing the energy of each of the three souls. Um, so there's the, uh, cauldron of warming, which is like um, at your stomach. And essentially this is taking all, um, physical energy. It's taking, um, what I would have referred to as uh, astral energy, um, or no, I'm sorry, etheric energy. Um, so etheric energy is, uh, the four elements. Uh, uh, the ether is, uh, sort of the physical, energetic overlap, like structure of things before it becomes physical. Um, so it's sort of like the spiritual blueprint kind of a thing. Um, and that ties into the four elements and our ideas of the four elements. Um, so, so this is how we process that energy and that's tied to the lower self. Um, the middle self is, or the, the middle cauldron is the cauldron of, um, motion. And, uh, this In the poem, it talks about how uh, everyone's born with it on its side and through either great sorrow or through great joy, it flips one way or the other. And so it's all about like trying to get the balance. And this ties into um, the the middle self and also what I refer to as astral energy. Astral um, in its traditional sense of the word is related to the planetary powers. That's the whole star thing, you know? Um, So this is where a lot of... um, uh, planetary influence and energy comes in as well as things such as, uh, willpower and, um, astral projection, which takes a lot of willpower, um, to do. And then we have the cauldron of wisdom and the cauldron of wisdom is born upside down in every person. So it's kind of like facing downwards. Um, but through life experiences and through, um, the development of wisdom, uh, turns right side up so that we can receive divine wisdom. Um, so there is this a strong parallel to, you know, connecting with that higher self, your own um, personal God. Um, you know, I, I think the word God might kind of, uh, you know, weird some people out, but it is the aspect of yourself that is divine. And for me, divine is deity. Um, but I believe everything's divine. Um, but um, that is connected to um, the um, the powers beyond. So this is where the zodiac influences come from. This is where um, stars beyond ours. Um, in the um, Black Rose uh, tradition of witchcraft, one of the traditions I've trained in, um, Storm Fairy Wolf is one of the people that instructs it. And there's a lot of influence from the fairy tradition and they work with the three souls because it's related to Victor Anderson's fairy tradition. Right. And they use three symbols, which I think perfectly exemplify it. So like um, the lower self is the moon, the middle self is the sun and the higher self is a star, like a distant star. 
And um, what's interesting about that is that the, um, the moon, you could connect that to sublunar. Sublunar was a, a platonic term referring to the four elements. Um, then you have the middle self and that's the planetary energy. So it's everything in the sun's domain, our solar energy, right? And then the far off star would be like Zodiac, you know, things beyond us. Mm-hmm. Bigger um, than ourselves. I'm going, I'm going off on a tangent, but I hope. It's okay. I think it's, question. I think it's really fascinating. And I love the idea that that middle one is in this motion and it sort of flips around and goes up and down and, you know, we might see that and correct me if I'm wrong. When I was reading the book, I uh, took on that the the lower one, the bottom cauldron was more uh, the physical things in our body. So physical, um, like our actual body, basically. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, depending if, if we have a great sadness or despair, and let's say that middle one flips over, then it almost like empties, starts emptying that bottom one as well. And we can see things like um, not taking care of our body or a physical manifestation in our body and those sorts of things. Is that sort of how it might be interpreted? Yeah, um, in my experience, yes. Um, and I explore a little bit more of this in the, the upcoming book. Um, you know, I, I think that they don't necessarily flow in one direction or the other. So the whole thing is about trying to get them to work together because one warms the one, you know, above it. Um, but the, the main goal is that cauldron of wisdom mm-hmm. um, because when it's upside down, that wisdom, the cauldron, the wisdom from the divine that spilling isn't going to fill any cauldron. It's just going to kind of uh, go out and anything from that middle cauldron is just going to kind of bounce back down um, mm. instead of warming it. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there is sort of a wisdom there of, you know, um, because the, the cauldron of motion is related to the heart and the, the emotions. Right. So there's this sort of idea of, you know, um, Almost sort of like, um, what is that term? The hierarchy of needs. Um, I forgot. It's someone's name, hierarchy of needs. But it's sort of um, like you were saying, like um, on one level, it's sort of like going from the most base needs, like survival and physical activity and physical health, and then moving to like emotional health and emotional um, fulfillment, and then reaching that kind of spiritual fulfillment um because it's hard it's hard to do these things if for example um you're not physically secure if you don't feel physically secure or it's hard to um that's why i think a lot of like monastic traditions whether it be like like buddhist or or catholic or whatever you know um they're sort of this vow of poverty but also they're taken care of. So all their physical cares are not something to care about so they can focus on other things. And I think in our modern society, that's very, very hard. Um, it's very, very difficult um, to dedicate yourself to something um, spiritual and a spiritual path and still deal with life, you know, deal with things like rent and, you know, like, you know, paying the bills. Um but, you know, these things are easier when these cares are taken care of and, you know, we're fulfilled. I love that distinction with the monasteries. They do. They have their house taken care of, their clothes and their food, and that's all your base level needs for survival, which right. is 
I mean, all of that as well, those base level survival needs, if you do follow the chakra system, that's your root chakra. And right. if that's blocked, you're ungrounded and you can't start to move up to, you know, receiving wisdom and connectedness through the crown chakra. So it right. that's sort of the interlacing that I read through it as well, that yeah. base needs had to be sort of met first before you can move up. And that's why I think I've, I've seen a lot of people either with a root chakra imbalance or just taking breaks from their spiritual practice since the pandemic hit, because you, you can't often focus on those spiritual things when you don't feel safe and, you know, you might get sick or you're immunocompromised and it's, you know, the whole world feels like it's going crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that leads, um, um, just naturally, it leads to that emotional, um, you know, um, insecurity, you know, um, it, not just the pandemic and like isolation and stuff like that, but like just seeing what's going on in the world is very emotionally draining and very emotionally taxing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then if you were to throw on that feeling not physically secure, um, you know, and, and I don't think, I don't like to talk in absolutes. So I do believe that, you know, like um, you don't have to have all this figured out to have a spiritual connection Agreed. or, you know, you don't have to be like emotionally uh, balanced all the time or happy or positive, um, to have that, that connection either. Um, but it does make it easier. Um, you know, when you're not stressing about like your next paycheck, mm-hmm. it's, it's easier to devote time to like self-care, you know, and your emotions and then when you do that, it's easier to be clear and work with those higher energies. I agree. I agree. Good, good making that distinction as well. So I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, I'm never feeling like I've got everything down pat. Maybe I can never follow this path because that's absolutely not the case. Well, and that's why I love magic because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big proponent of like using magic to, to better your life and enhance it. Um, there's a popular notion and I think it actually comes from the TV show charmed, which is this idea of not doing magic for personal gain. Um, and I'm totally, I don't believe that. I don't um, believe that either. (laughs) Or the same for the exact same reason. So I believe that the gods or God or whatever your, um, paradigm is that you're approaching it. They want us to feel secure so that we can do greater work, uh, related to them. Yes. And I think a lot of what happened, like I'm just watching Charmed for the first time in my life as an adult because it was banned in my household growing up. And it's, oh my gosh, the 90s was like, they wear the most outrageous things. And the worst part is I know that that's what we actually wore. Right. (laughs) It's so crazy to look back on the butterfly clips. But uh, I digress. With that whole harm none and nothing for personal gain, I think a lot of that was, you know, we had that satanic panic and then there was suddenly this big focus on Wiccan witchcraft. And so it was very much like, oh, no, 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 don't worry, we're not doing anything wrong because there were still people being, you know, sometimes imprisoned, sometimes getting into a lot of trouble for, you know, oh, satanic, you know, influences in this horrible crime that just happened and people had this horrible view of it. So it was almost like a marketing ploy for witchcraft to be seen as palatable but it's done a big discredit because all those books that were being sold as palatable witchcraft have now created a whole generation of witches who think they can't use magic to help themselves which is kind of where magic almost began in the in the in the start right well I mean I I I I think a lot of like um those books specifically the 90s 
um, you know, there is an emphasis on, or there is the approach of like, these things can help you or they can help you, you know, here's a money spell, here's a whatever. Um, but I think the focus was so strongly on um, the religious aspects mm-hmm. of witchcraft, particularly uh, the Wicca strains of it um, for those exact reasons. Um, and this idea of like, harming none, which I'm, you know, I'm an advocate. If someone wants to believe in the threefold rule, does not want to harm others, I'm all for it. Like more power to you. I think that's great. Um, you know, but, you know, like, I think there is, um, exceptions for everything. Um, you know, just like, um, any sort of self-defense, um, you know, there are times where you need to, to do it. I think it's just about having the wisdom to understand, like, is this something that like, I personally, like I'm doing because I feel my ego is attacked mm. or because this is something that needs to be done for the greatest, greater good. Um, but I think that a lot of people may have difficulty discerning that, like when it's justice and defense versus, you know, just being sort of, um, a not good person, <laughs> you know, trying to harm random people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people were losing um, their children. They were losing their jobs. They were, you know, being kicked out of the places they lived all during the satanic panic, mm-hmm. you know? So um, in a lot of ways, I really appreciate what those books did for the kind of PR and the image of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And if someone wants to be, you know, a goody two shoe, you know, white lighter, sort of which I'm, I'm all for that because the world does need more positive people. Yeah, there's um, nothing wrong with positivity and not harming people at all. Right. But, you know, there, there is a point where, you know, um, what is the least harm, you know, um, for example, if, um, you know, this is a little dark, but like, if there is a rapist in your neighborhood out on the loose, what is more harm? doing a spell to bind them and make sure that they get caught, you know, which violates their free will or doing nothing because Mm -hmm. you don't want to harm someone. Like where is more harm going to occur? So it's where, again, you know, that kind of idea of justice and wisdom comes in versus, you know, this petty of like, how dare her do that thing that upset me, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. thing. I agree. Yeah. There's a, there is a fine line. A lot of it comes down to your own moral compass Um, rather than I guess the the spirituality or the religion aspect of it it's going to be your own moral compass regardless what you practice well and in the craft you know we've had the saying of um the craft is a religion of the priesthood um so what that means is that like every witch is their own priest and they don't need an inter um intermediary between them and God, them and their morals. This is something that they are sovereign. They figure out on their own. Um, and, and in the end, they have to answer to themselves mm-hmm. and the people around them in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And any deities that they may um, right. work with. Now, jumping on to a different topic now, you have okay. just birthed into being a second book called Mastering Magic, A Course in Spellcasting for the Psychic Witch. Do tell me more. Oh, okay. So this book was really hard to write. 
Um, you know, uh, with Psychic Witch, um, it was easy. I worked with Owl Spirit. That's why there's an owl on the cover, um, because that is a very close ally of mine. Mm. With this book, Moth was very adamant to work with me. And that's why there's a moth on the cover. But going into it, I should have known birthing something with moth would not be easy, um, would be very, very challenging. Um, but I think it's the process that needed to, I needed to have. Um, the book is um, essentially my tips and my approach of how I approach uh, casting spells. Mm -hmm. So Psychic Witch is all about like sort of um, the step one, connecting with energy, working with energy, building energy. So now it's, now that we have that, it's like, well, like, let's move on to like the fun part of magic, right? Which is like the things like, cause the things, are you know they're cool you know like like the candles the environment the aroma there's a feeling to to physical magic that even mental magic and psychic magic does not have and there is a potency to it um so this book um i go through and i kind of teach um, my advice of like why magic fails how to make it not fail you know what are the principles in this to get it to be effective. And along the way I teach, uh, as I teach, I give spells to help you with your psychic ability. Um, so whereas the first book was using psychic ability to enhance your magic, that's where it's building to. This is about using magic to enhance your psychic ability and your connection. Um, and I have a lot of um, great contributors. Um, uh, like big names that I'm honored um, to have in the book. Um, and not all of them have been publicly announced yet. Um, but it's cool because I wanted to see like, well, how do you do magic for psychic, like to enhance your psychic ability? You know, like, would you like to share something? So it's really cool to um, get everyone's perspectives on that. Um, but the main point of the book um, is connection. It's this idea of, um, you know, I'm an animist and it goes back to the idea of we're all one, right? So everything's divine, everything's energy. So everything has a consciousness, um, including my computer, including my shoes, you know, on some level, it's part of the divine and it has a consciousness. And for me, I have found that magic works a lot uh, better when I take it from an animist approach as opposed to like a more colonial mindset. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, these aren't ingredients or they're not just ingredients. They're not just tools, but these are spirits. These are allies. And when you can build that connection, it's going to strengthen and enhance your magic. Um, and I think, um, discovering that relationship taps into um, in witchcraft we refer to the mysteries which are um, things like I, who is it I think it's like Confucius it's some eastern wisdom they have a saying of the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon and with witchcraft there's a lot of fingers pointing to the moon but until you experience the moon, it, it's sort of, you can't put it into words. And I think that building this relationship uh, of um, connection and um, allying with things and honoring things helps you to move to that, that mystery. Um, and it's a mystery, not in the sense that like, you know, um, people are trying to hide secrets. It's just that it's, inexplainable unless you experience it. Um, it's like trying to describe what a dream is to someone who's never had a dream. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they can intellectually kind of grasp it, but until they've had the experience, mm -hmm. it's not 
quite the same thing. Yeah. And so I I think a lot of witchcraft wisdom is kind of trying to guide people into like experiencing those things. Um, But I think that we've gotten so caught up in this idea of like ingredients and tools and, you know, um, almost kind of a materialistic um, uh, framework where we're seeing things as things that we're using as opposed to forces to be connecting and Mm. allying with. I know personally, I I found a big shift with my own practice once I started or once I discovered or started working with the actual spirits of plants and herbs before using them. So I would connect with them sometimes in meditation or sometimes just speaking to them and sort of telling them what I wanted to do and what the outcome was and will you help me in like asking rather than just like, oh, you use, you know, basil for money here, put it in, right, you know, just. I'm going to chat with Basil and Basil has a universal spirit or if I grow it like I do here, maybe this particular plant has a slightly different spirit and and working with it that way. I love the animist um, ideals and even something like um, I I named our house. I always name our house. Our house has a name and I believe our house has its own energy and everything and I like to thank it for protecting us and all of that. And I often, whenever I lose things and I lose things, a lot. As I said, I'm pursuing an ADHD diagnosis. I lose things a lot. <laughs> if I can't see it, it doesn't exist and I forget about it. Um, so the other night I've been having a little bit of trouble sleeping. And I thought I really need my valerian root tea. And because it smells so bad, I usually hide it somewhere that my that I can't smell it and my cat can't find it because she loves it. Like and socks. It's really gross. Yeah, it smells like <laughs> old socks it's horrid yeah. uh, but it works so I'm looking for this tea and I'm thinking oh, I can't find it anywhere we've just moved house I don't know I don't know where it was in the last house where is it in this house so I'm walking around I went you know what I'm just gonna stop and I went hey Sally which is our house's name hey Sally I'd really like some help I really need to get some sleep tonight can you please give me a hand I took two steps and I looked up and I saw it and I was like thank you Sally like I believe the spirit of Sally helped me look in the right, the right area. And she was like, I know where you placed this in, in me. I'm going to show you. So it's always for me a very effective spell or working to simply ask my house where things are. And sometimes I need to say, I look, I will clean the kitchen if you can help me find this thing. And then I honor that and actually go and clean the kitchen. So uh, that's my, I guess, animist working. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, animism is like almost universal. Like if you go to like any culture and like, even if it's not present, but just go backwards, including European, like animism is at the root, like anthropologists think animism is like the first religion, like the first spiritual belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that a lot in children. once again, I go back to the children, the children are the unconditioned. Um, we see natural animism with them, you know, um, where they talk to things that aren't necessarily things. Um, And we even see it with adults. So adults name things that they love, like whether it's their car or their house or, you know, a ship. Um, And, but I think the best example of animism in adults, like even when they don't realize they're engaging it is when they are upset at something or worried about something. For example, a car. If, you know, someone is in the car and they're either running out of gas or something's going wrong, a lot of times you'll hear them talking to the car and being like, come on, just make it, you know, like it's an actual entity. And it's not that they're consciously processing that that's what they're doing, but that's totally what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Or 
technology, like if your computer is messing up or, you know, uh, some sort of electronic, a lot of times there's an either squaring at it um, or a begging of it to like, come on, just please, please work, you know? And I think that is sort of like our conditioning kind of like being peeled back a little bit, you know, and, and we're just kind of tapping into that, like that natural, because we want the thing to work. And so all of a sudden, yes, exactly. It's, it's totally primal. Um, and that's why I think it is a natural human, um, orientation for, for lack of a better word. And I think anthropologists are right that it probably is the very first, uh, you like religious belief that humanity had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Cause the primal side, I guess, is our instinct, right? Our gut instinct that we just revert to doing that. And I think everyone has done that or, you know, please don't, you know, please hurry up. We can just, we can make it there. You can do it, buddy. Let's get right. up this hill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we just got to get to that gas station and we're good. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that's a really, really great example. So I'm, I'm very excited to read, read this uh, new book of yours and see all of the people that have contributed. Have you released any names of people that have contributed so far? So Llewellyn did. And I think that the ones that they announced are all Llewellyn authors. Yep. Which, go, go figure. But there's <laughs> there's others. Um, Juliet Diaz contributed. Oh, lovely. Yes. Amazing. I'm excited to read her book as well. She's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I love her. Um, she She's a great person too. Um, Sky Alexander contributed something. Um, Judica Illes mm-hmm. contributed something. Um, Christopher Penzak. Madam Pamita, um, Lilith Dorsey. Um, there's a bunch. My mind's blinking because there's like 15 <laughs> or 16. So far, um, the people that you've said sound incredible. I'd love to see almost an insight into how they do their personal magic as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of cool because everyone contributed something totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of neat to, um, I even, uh, Teresa Reed, the tarot lady also, tarot lady, you yeah. know, did a, like how to clean a tarot deck, you know? Um, so. Fantastic. And so is this a book of spells or is this a book of how to do spells without it being like a recipe book? Yes. To both. So the original <laughs> vision was that it was going to be a psychic spell book. But mm-hmm. as I was working on it, I was, <sighs> and this is part of the, like the books changed several times. Um, but I realized like, Hey, I haven't really explained how to do spells, you know? So um, I, I changed it to being more of a like educational slash advice um, from my experience Um on how to cast spells. Um, but there are definitely a bunch of spells in it. Um, I believe there's like, um, over 60 or something different spells, um, and exercises. Um, but yeah, and there's a whole like section, like halfway through it, I cut out half of the book. So a fourth of the book was taken out because I realized this needs to be its own subject. And so that'll be another book. Um, you heard it here first. That's exciting. Another one. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I, I felt like this was the natural next step, Mm -hmm. um, after psychic witch. Um, and I felt like just providing a spell book for psychic ability wouldn't benefit people as much as like, you know, cause like a lot of psychic witch is more of like, here's why, you know, and that's what I wanted to present. Um, when it, 
isn't an exercise. It's me explaining why this thing is important. And so I wanted to do that with spell casting as well. I love that. That sounds very interesting. I'm so excited to read it. And I'm sure that, I mean, writing a book takes a lot of hard effort. And you've also mentioned that with the the moth. Did you find, I know, you know, moths are similar to butterflies and they have the cocoon and everything. Have to sort of break themselves out of that to be birthed yeah. into their new version of themselves. Did you find that yeah. experience? And, and and moths, they literally liquefy inside of the cocoon. Yeah, so they turn that. into like this DNA goo and then they rebuild themselves. Yeah. And that's what like a lot of this book writing process felt like because I thought I I thought I knew what the book was. And then the book kept telling me, no, it's, it's this thing instead, you know, um, because I'm always focused on my audience, you know, like who am I writing this for and what are they getting out of it? Um, and while, you know, there's nothing wrong with just a book of spells, um, you know, I think jumping from, cause a lot of people wrote me and said that my book was their first book that they ever read on any of these subjects. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want them getting a second book and having this big sort of gap in the middle of, you know, um, psychic and energy work to all of a sudden like hear spells, because I feel like while spells can work without, um, a lot of these elements and techniques and vantage points, um, the success rate is not going to be nearly as high as if you know why you're doing things. And you know what I mean? Mm. Sounds like you're setting them up for future success as well. And I can definitely yeah. see your Capricorn moon coming out as like, no, the practical logical next step would be to do <laughs> this. Otherwise right. they're not going to have all the information and the tools that they need to be able to do what I'm trying to help them do. Exactly. And that's, you know, the biggest, um, you know, I think I put it in the, the introduction, um, you know, is my whole goal is I, I want people magically empowered um, because I do want to see positive change in the world um, because I do believe in magic and I, I've seen how it's transformed my life. I've seen how it's transformed friends and students and um, you just countless people. And so I feel like if more people could transform their lives, realize the power that they have, even if, if that's the smallest thing that they get from it is this idea that like, um, I have the power to change my life, you know, that is radical. And I am, you know, I feel like I've done my work in the world, you know, um, for this lifetime. Um, and that's definitely what I want to drive home, um, with this book. The more people that can change their own lives, the quicker we can change the world. Exactly. Um, you know, and there is, you know, there is a focus on um, in Mastery Magic of the Hermetic Principles mm-hmm. um, because there's debate on the Hermetic Principles. Are they Hermetic? Are they not? Are they ancient? Are they not? Um, for me, it doesn't matter. Um, I was going to say, regardless, me, they seem to work. So. They work. They work. <laughs> and you can find parallels to older occult things anyways, um, just phrased a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there is that whole concept of as above, so below as within, so without, you know, um, the changes that we do to ourselves internally and in our lives reflect in the greater world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of the first, uh, psychic development tips, I don't even know if it's a tip. One of the first things I consciously did was after reading the Kybalion, which is the hermetic, uh, mm-hmm. tiny little book and 
one of the things from there was this idea of levers in your mind. Like you have a lever that's like either on or off because, you know, everything is at a, a polarity, right? So mm. I would have like closed psychic ability, like no psychic and then open psychic. And that was mm. like my little lever. And I guess it's similar in psychic, which you have a dial that you turn on a and dial. off. Yeah. yeah. So it's similar mm. to that. And I would just, you know, throw it up. And then I would imagine cable tying it to open because I wanted to be open and develop really, really fast. And it was one of the first things and that came from reading the Kybalion all about hermetics and it worked. And I was like, wow, cool. Let's do this with other things. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like every, I, I don't want to say every, cause that's a broad brush, but I would say like 90% of all of the magical elders that I deeply respect have employed the Kybalion and teach the Kybalion's principles, you know, because there's something to it, regardless of who brought it forth or like, how old it is, whatever, like they're fundamental principles that are fantastic for the beginner to understand like how energy works, the power of our mind, things of that nature. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Matt. I feel like we could talk about all of this stuff all day, (laughs) but thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us today. I think everyone listening is going to get so much out of this episode and out of your books as well if they haven't read them yet now can you tell everyone where they can find you online if they'd like to follow along everywhere um although you know i used to say it's easy but now there's all these imposter accounts Mm. that make it a little harder so if you go to mattauren.com m-a-t-a-u-r-y-n.com i have all my social media links there um and you can find me there as well as my newsletter Fantastic. That makes it easy. And I will pop a link to that in the description for this episode as well. And thank you everyone else for listening. If you have liked this episode, I'd love to hear about it. Please let me know your thoughts by sharing a review on Apple Podcasts or even tell a friend to listen to the podcast and share it along or share it on social media. You can tag my account, which is at Witch Talks Podcast. And I would love to hear and reshare all of that on Instagram as well. As always, I hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are in the world today. And I'll chat to you next time.